Hello and welcome to the Centre Trail podcast. My name is John Harney. Tara Strauch and I will be back next week, but before then I wanted to start the new semester here at Centre College by sharing some student work with you. This past spring, I taught a class on the history of popular modern sport that focused mostly on the emergence of team sports in the 19th and 20th century. As part of the coursework, I put my students into groups of four or five and asked them to put together about 20 minute or so podcast episodes that talked about a major historical topic or theme that interested them. I shared one of these episodes earlier in the summer, and I now am sharing the rest. I'm very proud of the work that they did. I think they did really well. You can find more of their work at sites.center.edu slash popular sport, or you can always go to centertrail.com to get in touch with myself or Dr. Stroke to find out more about the work students are doing here at Centre. Today's podcast from Carson Ebert, Alex Leff, Evan Whitus, and Usa Lee looks at the famous American sports moment, the miracle on ice. Hello again, everybody. I'm Al Michaels, along with Ken Dryden. It should be a great night. I'm sure there are a lot of people in this building who do not know the difference between a blue line and a clothesline. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter, because what we have at hand, the rarest of sporting events, an event that needs no buildup, no superfluous adjectives. In a political or nationalistic sense, I'm sure this game is being viewed with varying perspectives, but manifestly, it is a hockey game. The United States and the Soviet Union on a sheet of ice in Lake Placid, New York. Hello everyone, welcome to the world of the history of modern sport. Today we are going to talk about the Miracle on Ice, an American victory over Soviet Union in ice hockey. And I'm Silivu, a senior student from China. And frankly speaking, I know nothing about ice hockey before, so this will be a good time for anyone who doesn't know hockey to gain some knowledge about it, and for anyone who knows hockey to get some interesting history behind it. So here our Guest. Hello everyone, my name is Evan Whitus. I'm a senior here at Center College. I'm a history major. Uh, my role in the podcast will be talking a bit about the Soviet hockey team and sort of the history behind them. Hello everyone, my name is Carson Ebert. I'm a junior here at Center College and my major is economics and finance. My role in this podcast will be talking about the political impact in the Cold War on the Miracle on Ice and the 1980 Olympics. Hey everyone, my name is Alex Leff. I'm a junior at Center College, majoring in German and minoring in history. Uh, along with Evan, I'll be talking about the game of hockey, specifically in the Olympics, um, and also about the U.S. hockey team under Herb Brooks. So first question, for anyone who doesn't know ice hockey like me, um, what do you need to know to watch an ice hockey game? So basically, hockey is played um, in an inside arena. It's on a sheet of ice. It's a 60-minute game with three 20-minute periods, two teams, five, te- five players on each team with one goalie, three forwards, and then 2D. And give or take, depending on what type of league you're playing in, maybe 10 or 15 extras on the bench uh, ready to go. Forward and defenders, what are those? So forwards are going to be the guys on the ice who are better at skating, usually going to be able to shoot the puck a bit better, pass it around. Defenders are going to be bigger guys. They're able to sort of muscle around in front of the goal and block shots. So that's basically forwards and defenders in a nutshell. Thank you for explaining the basic knowledge. And as we are talking about the Miracle on Ice, so what is special about the Miracle on Ice? And could you introduce some, some background about it? 
So coming at this question from a political perspective, uh, the United States represented a capitalistic way of life while the Soviets represented a communist way of life. And the United States um, were not as good at hockey as the Soviets. The United States at this point felt like an underdog from a hockey standpoint and also from a political standpoint. So why was the American underdog at that time in hockey? Uh, the reason that the U.S. team was in this Olympics considered the underdog is the team's average age was 21. They're pretty much composed of amateur or collegiate hockey players, whereas the Soviet team was basically uh, just professional hockey players. Yeah, and I'll take that from there. And that's kind of where Carson brought up that the Soviets lived a communist lifestyle. They were able to pull strings and use their military service to count towards their career, whereas their hockey playing was considered amateur, and this allowed them to be in the Olympics and practice for 1,200 hours a year without having to have a real job or life. So talking about the amateurism, did the American people at that time, the 1980s American, really pay attention to the hockey team if they know their player is not that capable, is not that professional? Um, at the time, there wasn't too much of a following for the U.S. hockey team, but following the victory, it was more um, American pride that prevailed rather than the pride of winning a hockey game because this, the Americans had then beat the Cold War opponent of the Soviets. Difficult time for our country. The Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. The Shah had collapsed. Our people had been taken hostage. We were humiliated by almost nightly uh, insults, burning the American flag. It was a time when we were losing confidence in ourselves as a country. What turned into a, a, a political event uh, was something that we really didn't expect or, or understand, frankly. You know, we were, we were a bunch of kids, and man, we wouldn't have known Gorbachev from, from Makarov. As Alex brings up that political victory of the United States over the Soviets, I think it's important to point out the Olympic Games have been excellent in showing how sport can be used to explore major themes in politics. The 1980 Olympics, which is just what we're talking about here today, could be considered the best example of intertwining sports and politics at the Olympic level. On one side of this game, you had the United States, who represented a capitalist way of life driven by self-interest and free markets, who labeled the opposing USSR as a communist dictatorship who restricted the rights and freedoms of its citizens. The USSR openly marked the U.S. as an imperialist nation to its citizens, blatantly criticizing their international role in politics as forceful and selfish. While bold comments were coming from both sides, this ultimately set the stage for an amazing game, later to be known as the Miracle on Ice to U.S. citizens. So we've been talking a lot about the, quote, Miracle on Ice. Did the United States need a miracle at this time? It's really interesting you brought that up because prior to this Olympics, there was a series of events that cumulatively make up of what is considered today as the Cold War. And in an instance where the United States was also an underdog other than the miracle on ice was the space race. After the Soviets launched Sputnik in 1957, which is the world's first artificial satellite, the U.S. viewed Russia as a very, very serious threat with potential nuclear war looming and seeing Russians ahead of the U.S. in this space race left U.S. citizens feeling very anxious. It took 10 years for the U.S. to make a comeback. However, when they did, they did it in a victorious fashion. In 1968, the U.S. had the first man orbit the moon, and only one year later, in 1969, when Apollo 11 put Neil Armstrong on the moon. 
However, to set the stage in the U.S. just prior to the game and the Miracle on Ice, the victory of the space race eventually calmed, and the U.S. was just coming off a very controversial war in Vietnam, where a large portion of its citizens believed we never should have deployed there in the first place. The 1980 Winter Olympics provided a chance for nationalistic pride in America during a time where it desperately needed one. Ultimately, the 1980 Olympics was a microcosm of the Cold War. The United States was able to overcome the odds and win the propaganda war in the hockey rink on an international stage. The game was icing on the cake, in a sense, for the United States to cap off the Cold War victory, because only 10 short years later, the USSR quickly dissolved, with the United States still standing as a superior power. Coach Herb Brooks of the United States team was even quoted to tell President Jimmy Carter that the win over the Soviets proves that our way of life is the proper way to continue. It seems that ice hockey for you American at that time had a significant showing of superiority in the way of life. It is the capitalism over the communism and the capitalism wins. So how did the Soviet Union play at that time? Did their team culture embody the weight of communism? Yeah, actually, in a lot of ways it did. Soviets were often characterized by playing a tic-tac-toe style of passing, very disciplined. Some would even say that it was military discipline. And they played a very boring sort of game. In some respects, they didn't have wild goal celebrations. They played like they had been there before. Coach Tikhanov also was a main arbiter of sort of that military discipline. And some of his players had sort of testy things to say about him uh, later on in their lives. For example, Sala Fedosov said, Coach with no heart, can he teach us to play? No, he gives us drills, discipline. He wants to see us still as puppets, dancing to his whistle for the rest of our lives. That's dictatorship. And oftentimes we associate communism with totalitarian dictatorships. And obviously under Stalin for so long, the Soviets are a prime example of what a dictatorship can do to a country. So, in a lot of ways, yeah, their communist reality did reflect how they played on the ice. On the other hand, Herb Brooks, who was the coach of the U.S. national hockey team, deemed as a very hard-nosed coach, but if you talk to the players and the people that surrounded him during the time of the Olympic hockey tournament, and outside of that, he was seen as a very caring person and had his heart in everything that he did. Very interesting. Now come back to the game. Who made this ice hockey a miracle? And how the American players, who is considered as the amateur underdog, deliver such miracle? For the U.S., goalie Jim Craig was a vital part of the team. Donning the iconic goalie mask, the Friday the 13th mask, that would then uh, become a major part of pop culture of the time. He was also a very, he was an amateur goalie coming out of Boston University, and for him it's a very overwhelming experience to be put on under such a spotlight, especially against such a professional team like the Soviets. On the Soviet team, they had Vladislav Tretiak, who was an absolute giant in the sport, stopped pretty much everything that came at him, and he sort of revolutionized the position of goalie from then on out. In a lot of ways, he was considered the best goalie of all time. Sports Illustrated named him the goalie of their all-time greatest hockey team. And then in the Soviet Union, he was even more famous, greatly loved, a quote, hero of the Soviet Union in a lot of ways. 
has received the Order of Lenin and the Order of Honor for the Russian Federation and the USSR. And then at the 2014 Sochi Olympics, he was the uh, last person on the torch relay, and he set the flame to start the games off. And then the second major player for the Soviet Union was Slava Fedosov, who I've talked about a little bit earlier. He was a defenseman, and much like Trediak, was considered one of the greatest players in the world at the time. He ended up being the first Russian player to play in the NHL once the Soviet Union fell, and like Trediak, received the Order of Lenin from the Soviet Union. So he was obviously an incredibly stout player to have on the back line for the Americans to have to get past. Michael Ruzioni, who was the captain of the very young U.S. team, was a keystone player for them. Even though, just like many of the other U.S. hockey team players, he was coming out of Boston University, and he would be the one leading the charge for the U.S. offense against the very talented Soviet defense. It seems that the Soviet Union was overwhelmingly greater than the Americans, so how did the American win? So now I guess it's as good as time as any to dive into the game. Miracle on Ice took place on February 22nd, 1980 in Lake Placid, New York. And to answer your question, there were a whole lot of reasons. Picked up at the blue line, the Americans doing that well thus far against the Soviets. Buzz Snyder. Losing it, out to the point, slap shot, and it was deflected in from the point. The Soviet Union takes a one to nothing lead. Kasatinov's slap shot was deflected in past Craig, and the Soviet Union leads one to nothing at the 9-12 mark of the first period. Only to be matched by the U.S.'s Buzz Schneider, who scored a goal at about 14 minutes to tie the game. It would only get worse for the U.S. as as more pressure would be put on, and a goal by Sergei Makarov would put them down 2-1 with about 17 minutes left to, to go in the first period. Despite being down 2-1, Craig stopped many Soviet, Soviet shots while the U.S. team struggled offensively uh, nearing the end of the period. But nearing the end of the period, Mark Johnson managed to score a buzzer beater, tying the game 2-2 to start the second period. Yeah, this buzzer-beater goal ended up being highly demoralizing for the Soviet team because they were used to being up on teams by pretty sizable margins outside of the first period. And so Tikhanov went a little bit wild and substituted Trediak for Vladimir Mishkin, who is their backup goalie, which is a pretty interesting decision. Uh, Fedosov, who's ever the... Outspoken individual only said that, quote, Coach Crazy when looking back on the event. However, Vladimir Trediak hadn't been playing that well up to that point, and Vladimir Mishkin ended up playing pretty decently through the rest of the game. But uh, this was seen as a pretty telling moment that the Soviets were in trouble in a major way, and it would only kind of get worse from there. Despite this game time decision by Tikhanov to pull Trediak, the Soviets would score early in the second period and would take a 3-2 lead two minutes into the second period. After this, Jim Craig would stop every Soviet shot with the Americans being outshot 12-2 for the entire period. So at this point, you're saying the goalie for the United States, Jim Craig, is playing extremely well, especially in the second period, while Treviak pulled the very famous, very 
talented player for the or goalie for the Soviets. Would you consider this a turning point in the game? I absolutely believe this was a turning point in the game. I mean, you're seeing a college athlete stop shots from the best players in the world and the best goalie in the world who the Soviets were going to ride to a gold medal likely is now sitting on the bench. Seeing that type of inexperience trump any other aspect would definitely be demoralizing and just the absolute strain of playing a emotionally charged hockey match for 40 minutes and not really getting anything done even though you seem to be dominating the other team had to be completely demoralizing so the americans were essentially had all the momentum going into the third period and the soviets were trying to figure out what exactly was going on they were pretty much punched in the mouth at 657 of the third period vladimir krutov was sent to the penalty box putting the soviets a man down for two minutes. And in this power play, the Americans took full advantage with Mark Johnson scoring at the 839 mark, tying the game at three, giving a lot of momentum to the U.S. team. And then only a couple shifts later, Mike Ruzioni was left wide open in the high slot, which is between two circles in the offensive zone. And he fired a shot on Michigan, and he ended up scoring allowing the Americans to take the lead 4-3 with only 10 minutes left in the game. And here's the original call by Al Michaels of ABC. They get it out in front. Loose puck out in front, and Davey Christian able to get his stick on it to clear it away. Schneider, buzz, long slap shot, saved by Mushkin. The U.S. team is depending a little bit too much now on Jim Craig. He's making too many good saves. Arruzzioni! Yes! We've got Bedlam. Oh, I love Brooks' reaction. Here it is again. Here's Aruzioni using the defenseman as a screen. A good low shot. And Aruzioni scored this goal with 10 minutes left in the game, and that's a lot of time. So, obviously, the Soviets had to figure out a way to score, and knowing the Soviets shouldn't have been that difficult. But the Soviets' strength in the game ended up being their weakness and that they weren't used to playing in the final waning minutes of a game down to a team. So common practices at the end of the game, they didn't know or didn't practice in any way, shape, or form. So one of the main things you do at the end of a game if you're down is take your goalie out of the game and replace him with an extra attacker and hopefully generate some offense. Well, Tikhanov didn't believe in it. They never practiced it. They didn't want to do it and so they skated with five forwards and defenders for the entire 10 minutes and this game time decision is probably a major reason why the Soviets weren't able to get back into the game and tie it back up and one of the reasons why the Americans were able to pull this off. Long shot, Craig able to get a piece of it to sweep it away, 28 seconds, the crowd going insane. Carlamon shooting it into the American end again. Morrow is back there. Now Johnson, 19 seconds. Johnson over to Ramsey. Big Alekhanov gets checked by Ramsey. McClanahan is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Silk. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. 
Thank you for your sharing. It seems to me who never watched Isaki that the Isaki was a really exciting, fast-paced game to watch, and I'm certain that the victory of this kind of game must spirit up the American who were in the underdog position during the Cold War. And it seems that the American hockey team had already met its victory in the middle of the game, which is at the beginning of. At the beginning of the third period, and that seems to be an excellent performance that was far away, far away from amateurism. And if this miracle on I really suggested that capitalism is superior to communism, it would be no surprise that the breakdown of Soviet Union in 1991, which marked the final victory on capitalism. And with me now, two of the great heroes of that victory: Jim Craig, the goalie; Mike Caruzioni, who scored the winning goal. Jim, as much emotion as I think I've ever seen at one sporting event. I wonder if you could feel it down on the ice. We could feel it throughout the stands, throughout the whole game, and especially in the last ten minutes of the game. Do you think nationalistic feeling had a great deal to do with it? This chant "USA, USA." I think、uh, that had a great deal to do with it, and、uh, there was a lot of hockey fans there tonight too. 